Hi, everyone. I'm Blake Bartlett, a partner here at OpenView. As a VC firm, we invest in software companies and help them grow faster. This season on Build, we're talking about product-led growth. Each week, I sit down with operators to hear firsthand how they've put their product at the center of user acquisition, conversion, and expansion. Sadly, this is the last episode of the season, but not to worry, as season six will begin next week. Stay tuned at the end of this episode for a sneak peek. Today's episode is a doozy. I sat down with Heaton Shaw, product mastermind and product-led growth aficionado. Heaton is the founder behind companies and products like Crazy Egg, Kissmetrics, and most recently, FYI. He's also an avid creator of helpful resources like Product Habits and the Free Stuff for Startups collection on Product Hunt. So buckle up because you're in for a lot of wisdom on how to build and grow free SaaS products that people love. Well, Heaton, thank you so much for joining us here on the Build Podcast. It's great to have you. Thanks, Blake. I'm excited to talk about my favorite topic. And that would be product. Product. Yeah. (laughs) Heck yeah. I know that you've built many cool things from Crazy Egg to Kissmetrics to Quick Sprout, Product Habits, and now FYI, the list keeps going. But give us the highlights reel of what these things are and the threads that tie them together. Yeah, absolutely. So back in 03, right when I got out of college, my co-founder and I started a consulting company doing marketing consulting. So everything really started there. I was getting out of college and he was getting into college. And he had a customer paying him 3500 bucks a month to do SEO. And so that's really where I think my internet journey really started in terms of building these things. Within about the first year, we were making money. So we tried building 12 different products. And the one that ended up working was Crazy Egg. And Crazy Egg helps you see where visitors are clicking. We helped pioneer the category of heat maps on your website to give you basically a visual representation of what people are doing on your pages, where they're clicking, where they're not clicking, where they're coming from, but very focused on easy to understand, very visual analytics. And now that concept of a heat map is very popularized. So the one theme you'll see about a lot of the things I've done is that I like to do something different than what exists based on purely discovering customer needs and then solving them in unique ways. And so with Crazy Egg, we solve that with taking all the bar graphs and pie charts and all that stuff. We still don't have any of those in Crazy Egg. And I'm still resisting the team over there and making sure they don't add more bar graphs and charts unless absolutely necessary. But it's really a visual analytic to help you understand what website visitors are doing. And then fast forward a little bit and we decided to spin out what we ended up calling Kissmetrics, which started out as a funnel analytics tool. And with that one, we actually ended up raising money. So Crazy Egg is now 14 years old, self-funded and growing. And Kissmetrics is a very typical startup venture-backed sort of journey where I don't run it anymore. I don't spend any time on it. What that business did, though, is we discovered that there are a number of different problems with analytics. And this was back in about 2008, 2009. And the three problems that we discovered are analytics are not person-based. So you can't tie the data to people. Number two, basically the way Google Analytics would work with the funnels and the way analytics tools worked before we came along with Kissmetrics is that you would track data and then you'd have to wait 24 hours to see it in an interface. And then if you were lucky, it was tracked correctly. If you weren't, it would take another debugging process and all that to do that and get the data right. While in our case, what we built is we built a really good API and we built what we called a debugger 
which is a real-time view of the analytics, which actually didn't exist in that forum until we came along and did it. So what happened is when engineers or non-engineers were integrating analytics, they could see exactly what data was getting into the system. And then we did something really cool, which is we built this left-to-right funnel. So historically, funnels have been top to bottom when you're looking at the steps that people are taking on your website or in your business. This funnel we invented was left to right. What that allowed us to do is make it really easy to segment the data by anything you wanted because it looks like a table. Now, everyone that's used analytics knows about that left to right. Well, I'll tell you right now, we invented it. And now it's become popularized, just like heat maps. And so we tend to have this attitude about innovating based on finding the number one problem people have and then really doubling down on making that go-to-market be about, oh, this is different. So that's Crazy Egg and Kissmetrics. And then with Quicksprout, it actually used to be my same co-founder, Neil, his blog. And more recently, we've taken it over and are just iterating on what is the opportunity when it comes to online marketing and how can we serve the beginners. It turns out that the best way to serve them is help them find tools. So we try to build some software and other things. And what we figured out is that online marketing for us, the way our point of view was on it, is so crowded that beginners coming into it have a hard time figuring out what e-commerce platform should I use or what checkout system should I use or what kind of email marketing should I use. And we've been consolidating around basically being a recommender for those types of tools. And then the last two. So Product Habits was my personal email list. And a couple of years ago, my new co-founder, Marie, and I, we decided to basically convert it to more of a brand. So we called it Product Habits and we have like a 25 plus thousand person email list. And we send them emails that are all about product. One of them is a weekly email that has about 10 or 11 links in it that I'm curating and putting out there. These are the best links of the week, in my opinion. And people seem to like that. That's how I started the newsletter many years ago, like four years ago now. And now what we really focus on is that as well as basically doing product stuff and sharing it and teaching people how to do it as well. We've had many different series like that, like we talked about how you do early access for a feature or a new product, all the way to how you figure out pricing, where we partnered with the folks at Price Intelligently, Profit Well, and basically taught people how to do that. And then last, but definitely not least, is my latest company, FYI, usefyi.com. And what we help people do is simply find their documents in three clicks or less. So it's a tool that connects to all the cloud services you use. And we have a growing list of those that we connect to. And if you're somebody who's always looking for documents or always working in documents and working with your team, that's the product that you should be checking out. The next phase of that company has to do with what we call FYI for teams. And we've been working very hard on building that out and starting to get folks starting to use it. Two follow-up questions for you. How do you personally decide what to build next? And I guess as a follow-up question to that, how do you know when it's working and if it's something you should keep going with? In my life, I think the way I solve both those problems is by literally figuring out what the number one challenge is that people have. And it sounds absurdly simple, but it can be really hard. We had a couple failed products before we even found FYI. We had about at least 10 or 11 failed products before we found Crazy Egg. And the process, as you can see, got refined, right? We had a couple this time. We had about 10 or 11 the time before. So I would say that basically the key that I've found is that you have to make sure that you find a problem worth solving. And the way to find a problem worth solving is literally talk to people, do interviews, do surveys, do research in the market, and figure out what problems people actually have. So for example, in the document space, the number one problem people have is finding their document. That's it. 
in the analytics space today, the number one problem people have is understanding the data. Do I understand what I'm looking at and can I make a decision from it? So this whole idea of actionable data, actionable analytics is a big deal there. So if you talk about different markets, if you've spent enough time in them, that's one way. Or if you just do a ton of research. So in the document space, I didn't spend any time on it. Neither did my co-founder. But what we did is we became experts in it. So you ask me anything about documents and how companies work with them and all the different issues around their workflow and finding them and all that kind of stuff. I could go for days because we've done probably about over 2,000 different responses to surveys that we've sent out. And then at least 200 plus, depending on how you count it, customer interviews. That is how I decide what to build next. And I've learned that the hard way. I used to just build what I wanted. I used to do all kinds of other things that were just like, hey, let's build it really fast, et cetera. Now, if we're building fast, it's because we understand a problem to solve and we want to run an experiment to see if that problem can be solved in the way we're thinking. So for example, FYI started with what we call a five-day MVP. We built something in three days, shipped it internally, iterated it for two days, and then shipped it to about 50 different users and learned. And all it was, was a search box. You connect G Suite, Dropbox, and I think Box, and then you got a search box and you just typed in the search box, which you were looking for. We learned a ton from that five-day MVP that led to what FYI currently is, which isn't just a search box. And then you asked about after building it, what do I personally do around knowing whether it's working? Honestly, it all gets back to sentiment of the customer. So qualitatively, are they excited about it? Are they telling their friends about it? Are they tweeting about it? Are they emailing us about it? And so that's one vector. And then the other vector is quantitative, which is what's our retention look like? And what's the engagement look like? And where are we falling off? Who's most engaged with it? And things like that. So those deep dives into qualitative and quantitative information and those two vectors are what we really use to triangulate whether, hey, is this working or not? And oftentimes we're looking for pockets where it is working if we're noticing that on average it's not working. So it's just an assessment. I honestly like to make these things very simplistic in thinking. That way, when we go to the execution, it's as close to as simple as possible when you're looking at the data and trying to make these assessments. I like that framework of thinking through it. Figuring out what to build is really kind of going not so much towards your personal passions, but towards where is their pain and where is there the most pain, both in terms of how pronounced that pain is and then also how widespread that pain is. And then once you've identified that as a potential opportunity, then it's, all right, go as deeply into that as possible in order to understand all of the nuances of what drives and creates that pain. Like you were talking about with how you know everything there is to know about documents and how teams interact with it. And then iterate from there and look for signals, both quantitative and qualitative. So you get to that point and you say, all right, you pass through all of those gates. We've built something. It seems like the world cares about it. Now it's all about distribution and growth. And I find your perspective to be sort of very interesting here because you've been building products, SaaS products, B2B products for 15 years plus now. And some of those are still in the market, right? You're still running with Crazy Egg. And so you've seen the evolution of distribution models and growth models over time. And you're running businesses of different vintages almost today. So with that backdrop, how have you seen the overall concept of software distribution and growth models evolve over time? And where do you think we are today and how has that changed? I believe today that the way the market is and the way people want to buy is they want stuff for free. That is really the kernel of where I start when I think about markets and businesses to go after. If I can build a product that's free, I will be in that market. If I cannot build a product that's free, I will not be in the market. I can tell you, hey, look, 
this is an enterprise company. Here's how they should go to market and do distribution. So this isn't about, oh, I think that there aren't any plays or any opportunities to build businesses that aren't freemium. For me personally, I love freemium because I love product. I love product-led growth. I love growth. I love even how marketing merges into that stuff. I love finding the perfect value proposition that someone's going to basically click that button at a 30 to 50 to 80% rate. Things like that get me excited. So to me, honestly, the answer to your question is more about what gets you excited as a founder? What gets you excited as a growth person? What gets you excited as a product person? Do you get excited to go build enterprise software? And if you do, you should do that. Right. And the way that your go to market is, is going to be based on that customer. That being said, there is a pull in the market where things are cheaper. Things are easier to get started with. You don't need six months to start using a product in an enterprise sale. In most cases, you can do it much faster. So the go to markets that I prefer the fastest and freemium tends to be the one where you can do that and where things like the concept of product led growth and all the things that that involves are much easier to execute on because you have more volume. And that's the other thing. I love volume. So the more volume I have, the more potential customers and users, the faster the test can run, right? And things like that. And that's not to say that over time, my businesses won't have a sales team or enterprise sales or any of that. But what I really love to build is a foundation of freemium. And the irony here is Crazy Egg started free. And right now, even till this day, we don't have a free plan because we made the wrong move, in my opinion. It was good for revenue and profits and things like that, but it really hurt us in terms of longevity of that business. And so now we're crawling our way out of that. We will have a free plan at some point. I've been saying that for a few years now, but we will have a free plan and it will be awesome. I've just seen the problem that happens when you have a free plan and then you get rid of it, or when you don't have a free plan at all, like Kissmetrics, and you don't really double down on that. Yes, it's a different slog and you have to like really think much harder about the product and build a product team out faster versus sales team or marketing team. But that would be my angle. It's probably not the answer you're looking for in terms of how I think about this, but I wanted to give a specific opinionated answer about how I personally think about it instead of just telling you, hey, these are the 12 different ways you can go to market depending on who your customer is. And pulling the thread on product-led growth, because we're clearly fans of that here at OpenView and we talk a lot about it. Well, I think you guys created the term, so let's not get this twisted. Yeah, well, look, we didn't create the concept, that's for sure, <laughs> yeah, right? You know, people have been building yeah. businesses this way, and we found that the world was talking about it just merely as, well, that's the bottoms-up model or that's the freemium model. And we thought that is partially true, but there's so much more to this. As we started spending time with companies, we really thought this is much more than a pricing model or just some sort of bottoms-up conception. This is really about what is at the core DNA of these companies and what is the default mode for solving problems in these businesses. And if you find companies where the DNA is, you know, on a default basis, solve everything through product, including all of the growth challenges, then really the best way to describe that is product-led growth, because it's more at the core essence of a company than merely just a pricing model. We saw this opportunity that somebody needed to put some framing around it, but folks like you are doing all the hard work of actually going and executing and innovating on these models. So we're happy to come up with some terms and some frameworks, but we're moving the ball forward together on this front. So do you think that product-led growth is the future of all SaaS products or the majority of SaaS products, or is it only going to work in certain categories and certain product types? I feel like it's inevitable that it works in all categories. I mean, companies out there like SolarWind that basically had a freemium model for engineers with their open source software and things like that. There's many other examples. I mean, even something like Red Hat and others have characteristics that I would say are product-led growth. And so my opinion is that because there's so much software out there, 
the ability for the product and someone's usage of the product to lead to growth for a business is really critical if you want to make sure you have lower customer acquisition costs and over time, honestly, higher lifetime value. And so to me, yeah, it's huge. It's huge when you can create a business and think through how do we get more people using the product because of the existing usage that's happening and really have brainstorms and thinking around that. A majority of my product conversations in companies that already have some resemblance of product market fit involve product-led growth. The majority of my conversations internally in my company involve thinking through how are we going to get that for our business and how much do we know and how much validation do we have that what we're thinking about in terms of that is going to work. And in product-led growth, I think a key question that I hear oftentimes from founders and from folks building these types of businesses is who ultimately is responsible for the revenue number or the growth number, if you will, in the business. In a traditional sales-led model, that's more often than not the VP of sales or the CRO, they kind of own that revenue number. But in a culture that's not driven by sales primarily, what does that look like? Maybe in your companies or the companies that you work with as an investor and advisor, who do you see kind of owning that number and being responsible? Responsible for driving that? That's a great question. My first caveat is just going to be it's completely cultural. So, depending on the company, I would be first focused on okay, what team has the greatest say on what ends up getting built and shipped? And I would start with that. And that might not be who has responsibility for revenue, but I start there. Because if you're really talking about product led growth, it's about who has the ability to dictate what gets shipped. In some orgs, it's sales. In other orgs, believe it or not, it's marketing. And in most organizations, it's somewhere between product engineering and founders. And so my opinion is that everyone in the companies should be focused on growth. What I see is that depending on the way the company makes money is going to change what area is responsible. So like if a company is literally a purely sales-driven company, then it's likely that sales is responsible for the number, the CRO, VP of sales, whatever it is. And if a company is very product heavy in terms of freemium business, focused on the product, founders love product, then product is going to have this either weird or very direct ownership to revenue. The reason I say weird is it's not typical for product teams to own revenue. What's typical is, like you can imagine, sales to own revenue. And so my opinion is everyone owns revenue and everyone can be responsible for revenue. And when you start thinking about OKRs, not that I'm a fan or not a fan of it. If you're using OKRs, congratulations, good luck. If you're not using OKRs, consider a different model. But at the end of the day, the way that the company's decision-making happens and how the individuals on the team are responsible for revenue is what I really look to kind of design the company around. So marketing is responsible for a certain piece. They are a factor in some equation that leads to the revenue of the business. So I try to figure out what are the factors here and how can each area of the company be responsible for it. I don't view revenue as something that a single part of the company should own at the end of the day. So then what do you think about having a dedicated growth team inside a product-led growth company? I have a lot of respect for the folks that have built dedicated growth teams. I also have a lot of respect for companies that have been able to get the whole team to think about growth all the time, which means that everything becomes a lot more measurable and actionable. And so I'm a fan of growth teams. At the same time, if culturally the company can't handle one team responsible for the in and out of customers, right? Because that's really what a growth team does is they're responsible for customers coming in and customers leaving, basically, in that whole process. And they have to work with the whole org 
just like finance works with the whole org. And so that, again, is a cultural imperative. If a company can't handle having a team like that, then they shouldn't have a team like that. If the best answer for the company to get growth is to have a team like that, wonderful, right? And there's been a lot about this. A lot of companies that have had growth teams dismantled them, for example. Other companies like Facebook still have their growth team. So it really boils down to culturally, what is the right way to set it up for the company? And there's a lot of factors to that. And most of it has to do with, can this team be successful? Because one of the reasons that growth teams have been dismantled in a lot of companies is because the way they were set up, they had separate engineering, separate products, separate design and things like that. And the way that other successful kind of growth teams are designed is that they actually go help other teams out. So that's a different way to think about it then, oh, should a company have a growth team or not? And what do I think about it? I think there's a lot of value in it if culturally it can work. And I'm curious to follow up on something you had talked about, which was this concept of everybody in the company is responsible for growth. Do you have any examples of what that looks like in practice of folks that you've seen or teams that you've seen doing that particularly well? Yeah, I feel like when a team starts implementing OKRs, that's what starts happening. Or when a team starts implementing actual metrics, whether it's leading and lagging indicators that teams are responsible for and then individuals are responsible for. I think the best example I would have is if you start digging into how Uber has been run, a lot of the ways that they think about it is everything bubbles up to the GMV number. And so it's just all about how do you know that what you're working on impacts the business? So asking any team member that can get you a lot of clarity. A lot of them will say, I don't know, right? Another question I like to ask is, What are you working on and why are you working on it? And the best answer is this is how it's going to impact the business. This is the actual metric I'm trying to move, or this is the experience I'm trying to improve because it's going to have this benefit and value and we can measure it. So I'm just looking for that in an org. And I think Uber is probably the best example I can give you today of a company that has just been built on that concept that these things are measurable and everyone should be responsible for a number. Sure. And then unpacking the role of some of the traditional, more revenue-oriented functions and what that looks like in product-led growth. Let's talk first about sales and then marketing. So what is the role of sales do you see in product-led growth? And when do you know that it's time to layer in some sales-oriented individuals on top of a successful freemium self-service-oriented business? There's no right answer. If you're early enough and you can put bandwidth towards talking to larger customers, you should. You should not wait. That being said, there are times when you're just like, I need to build the product. I need to focus. There's a few things that we know that large companies are going to need already. And we're sure of it before we can even really have serious conversations with them. Great, build that stuff or get those certifications. To me, the right time is when you have some amount of inbound coming in from larger companies that you feel like you want to start addressing and you feel like it's going to improve and increase your revenue. That's the right answer. A lot of us don't get in that state and have that inbound. So we have to go drum up that business and test the waters with enterprise customers too. So I think those are the two things. One is when you think you're ready to go up market because the product is there and the certifications or whatever are there, or when you're getting inbound, it just makes sense to start ramping that up. I also really highly recommend founders do sales, at least the first few or whatever, so that they can get a good understanding of how the product that you have needs to be sold. And do you have any advice for product-led growth-oriented founders who culturally might have an aversion to sales. It's something that feels or has connotations of being sleazy or perhaps something from the past. And, you know, we're in a new era and I'm just going to build a self-service product and never have sales ever in my future. Is that something that's possible? Or what would you do to sort of provide some advice to reframe how this individual might view sales? I would say view sales as customer success. 
I mean, today the best sales teams are more customer success oriented and want to help the customer win in whatever context, you know, we're going to help you increase your revenue or we're going to help you save money or we're going to help you secure your servers or whatever it is. It's all about customer success to me. So the way I would help the founder think about it is, hey, I know you like product, but that means you like customers. So you should figure out how to get more customers regardless of how you have to do it because you've built this great product, right? And sales is one way and you don't need to call it sales. You can be delusional about that, even though you are doing sales all the time with your product and your business. And you can focus in on how can you make customers be successful no matter who the customer is. And some of them need a little more handholding than others. And that's sales. Yeah, I've, I've seen some people in that sort of vein call them like a customer champion or something like that. It's great. I mean, it's actually what that person is meant to do. And, and I've found that a helpful framing for this sanitization of sales almost is to think about exactly what you were saying, customer success. So customer success is proactively helping users who currently pay you money. And then sales is proactively helping users who don't yet pay you money. So yeah. you want all of your users to be successful. You want all of them to get a ton of value out of your product. And free users that are in the sales funnel effectively are just users who haven't converted yet. And you equally want them to be successful, but sometimes they need some help, right? Sometimes they need some support because of their use case, because of the size or complexity of their internal organization. Not necessarily because of your product, but they need help navigating the buying process on their side. And that's kind of what a salesperson in my mind is meant to do. It's almost like, I am your partner and I am going to walk with you through this journey in order to get to a point where you are being successful and getting value out of our product. And we're kind of in this together, right? Yep, absolutely. And then what about marketing? I've sort of heard from a number of people and certainly seen this dynamic in marketing that the tried and true model of just produce a ton of content, gate all that content, do a bunch of webinars, et cetera, then just do a lot of email drip nurturing through marketing automation. That sort of tried and true model that drives MQLs is starting to wane in terms of its efficacy. What do you think about that? And what do you think the future of marketing looks like in a product-led growth model? Figure out how the product leads to conversion, whatever conversion you're looking for. So I really think through the product experience and figure out where to insert myself in order to get the upgrades or get the leads or get the demo requests or whatever. I stop focusing on emailing. I love email, by the way, but stop focusing on emailing customers and channels and things like that and really focus in on what's it going to take to get them very active based on the onboarding we've created. So the combination for me, the way I think about this is onboarding that leads to high retention, which leads to the conversion that you're looking for. And that's it. And so you're spending a lot more time understanding the customer and their behavior. And when they come back, what are they doing and getting in their flow and figuring out how to make that experience better and better. And then tying that exact experience to how you can monetize it or how you can turn that into PQLs, if that's your goal. But yeah, the standard MQL and all that stuff at the very top of the funnel, I like to cut all that crap out and say, how can I create a landing page? a homepage, an experience where people are led to sign up at a very high rate. And a very high rate is like 20, 30, 40 plus percent on a screen to get that kind of sign up rate. And that is a different type of pressure than thinking, okay, I'm going to collect a bunch of emails, then I'm going to send them a bunch of emails, and then I'm going to get them to sign up for something. Instead, I'm really thinking through the flow and the experience on every page, including a blog post, including everything and really focused on how do I maximize a conversion on that page. And usually at this point, it's not about collecting their email. On our blog, especially on FYI, particularly, we don't collect emails. 
We don't really care for their email. We care for them to sign up. And that might change, but that's our opinion right now. And then talking about word of mouth, word of mouth is something that certainly is a big feature of product-led growth businesses once the product starts to gain steam and momentum. You had talked about it earlier in the conversation about how do you know when something's working, some of those qualitative metrics that you see people talking about it, you see people promoting the product, et cetera. But if somebody's looking to either crack the code on word of mouth to sort of start generating it for the first time for a new product, or perhaps they have a product that's gaining some steam and some momentum, but they want to amplify and help drive additional word of mouth, what are some tools and approaches that can be used in order to achieve that? Yeah, I mean, there's so many like generic answers to this, right? There's like, oh yeah, you know, make your product great, things like that. I think what I'm looking for is signal. I'm looking for signal within the product itself, such as high conversion rates during onboarding that help me understand that people love this product. That's really all I'm trying to do the whole time that I'm thinking about how do I get more word of mouth or how do I get people to spread the product? I don't like to like juice it, so to speak, by making them do referrals or anything like that. What I want is such a great experience during onboarding that they need to tell other people about it. How do we create that experience? For example, with FYI, we spent a lot of time and continue to spend time on onboarding. There are some things that we still need to improve. But at the end of the day, if you sign up for FYI within two minutes, you should be able to get your doc in our interface and be able to find something in three clicks or less. And if we can solve that for you in that first experience, you're going to tell your coworker about it. We already see that happening. So really what it's about is figuring out what that experience needs to be that ties to what you're promising them on the homepage. So if we promise you, find your documents in three clicks or less, we better deliver on that as fast as possible. So for me, it's all about value delivery. If we can deliver on the value we're promising you in a very precise manner, every single time that we tell you we're going to do something, then that's what's going to get you to tell other people about it. I think it's that absurdly simple conceptually. In terms of the execution of that, you can imagine how many things we had to do to make sure that within the onboarding, you're able to see as many of your documents as possible in our interface. And a few final questions for you about a channel of marketing and certainly something that I know that you're very involved with, which would be Product Hunt. So what originally drew you to the Product Hunt community and what's kept you around? Ryan Hoover drew me to the Product Hunt community because he's somebody who actually loves product, helped write the book Hooked and is really honestly a genuinely nice and great guy and wants to help others. And this community initially started as his passion and something that he really cared about. He felt like product people needed a community. That's my words, not his. And so the way I think about this is that Product Hunt is the new way and has been the new way for a while that you just want to announce your product. It used to be that you would convince some writer like on TechCrunch to write about you. And that's how we used to launch products. Now those products are launched on Product Hunt. They're not launched on TechCrunch. And that's like a whole new world. So what drew me to it is Ryan. What's kept me there and made me really excited to be around is that there's enough community there and enough product people that will give valuable feedback if you ask and also just cheer you on. We all need a little bit of (laughs) cheering on and cheerleading, especially when we're working on a business and a startup, no matter whether you're working on the product side of it or anything else. And it's nice to have that support group. And so I would say he's created a support group for product people. That's probably the number one thing he's done with that community. And that's why I'm part of it. I also was early. And so I have, I think it's still the number one collection on Product Hunt. It's free stuff for startups that I just started on a whim. And so a lot of the reasons I stay is because I find value when I go there, but also 
I feel like I have a responsibility at this point because I have a large collection that I should keep fresh. And I also have a lot of people that follow me on Product Hunt and I love building product. It's just my perfect place, so to speak, just based on what I care about right now. And one of your most recent Product Hunt launches that I saw was the Product Resources list. And this was very successful. It won the day on Product Hunt. So it got the most upvotes and was the top product for the day. So unpacking that a little bit, what is Product Resources list? What it is, is we curated 251 different templates across various tools that you use, whether it's Google Docs, G Suite, Airtable, Coda, Tetra, Slight, a bunch of companies that have put out a bunch of templates. And the thing is, not everyone uses the same tools, and sometimes people use multiple tools. So we created a site that has all the templates from all the other tools that are out there because FYI connects to all those tools. So for us, what we're looking to do is help people solve the document problem in many different ways. And one of the intents that we've noticed that people have is they're looking for templates to help them basically do product work. And there's other categories where there are template opportunities like this where people are just looking for templates. So if you're looking for a product template, we wanted to create the best place for you to find it. And we believe we have just based on the fact that it's not just Airtable's area for it. It includes all the templates from a bunch of places and it's all the good ones, the ones we could find, the ones that were recommended and the ones that people really liked. And we're going to be growing that list. So it was something that I just wish existed and our team wished existed and also aligned with things we heard from customers where when they're trying to create a roadmap, they're looking for the best roadmap. Or when they're trying to run their teams, they heard about Spotify's squad model and they want to know how they run it and they happen to have a template on Coda. So what gets us excited is when we can solve problems for people, pure and simple. And the reason that we launched it is because we felt like that was a problem worth solving and it was very connected to what we're working on at FYI and what we want to do for people. Okay, so my final question for you is, what advice do you have for somebody who's looking to win Product Hunt on a given day like you have? I wish there was a way that you can guarantee that you get number one on Product Hunt in a given day. But there are so many factors that are not under your control. And I'm going to start with those because most people think you can say, I'm going to be number one. Look, we put that product out there knowing that this is a group of product people and knowing that they need this. And this is a great venue to launch that product. And that's why it got number one, because we were right. But we weren't sitting there like, we're going to be number one for the day. We're going to do all these hundred things to guarantee that. We just wanted to put out something good. And we found the audience that matches with it, which happens to be Product Hunt. And so we can be number one. The team and I launched something at Product Habits that's called Product News. And it was literally a week before this launch and it got number two. People are going to think I'm crazy, but like, I don't sit there and try to have an expectation. I sit there and say, how can we maximize this opportunity for whatever it is? And whatever we get, we get, and we learn from it. So we learned a long time ago that we have to create good images on product hunt to make them exciting. We have to think really thoughtfully about our thumbnail. You do the best you can to basically create the assets, but you have a whole site with thousands and thousands of products Look at the ones that are like yours. Look at the ones that are winning every day and go find the patterns. That's all we did. We know that we need to make a good thumbnail. Okay, great. We think about it like a product. We actually user test the product hunt experience for this product before we launched it. We built a fake product hunt page that actually ended up being just like the real one with comments and everything. And that led to people going to the product and messing around with the product. And we did a user test on it, a couple of them. And we learned a lot about what we need to tweak, what we need to change in order for the product hunt page to be great. So we just use the best tool a product person has, which is research. 
in order to figure out what should we do? How do we make this the best possible page and the best possible experience for people? That was it. So I think it's a lot like SEO, where if you have all this data out there, you know the backlinks, you know what pages people are ranking for, etc., you can go reverse engineer it. So with Product Hunt, what we did is we looked at everything else out there on Product Hunt that was related to what we're launching, and we learned from those things. And then we also looked at what were the things that were hitting number one, or what were the brands that were hitting number one constantly, and then what could we do about it? And then we did it. That's it. I mean, there's channels like making sure you're sending emails and telling people to check out Product Hunt and you're tweeting and things like that. But those are all very tactical, like what I would call marketing things that everyone should be doing. And lots of people have written about how to do a lot of that stuff. But at the end of the day, it's basically finding the audience that your product fits for and making sure that you're putting your best foot forward to guarantee that you maximize whatever it is that happens. For example, if Apple launched something on that same day, we would not have won the day. Exactly. The strategy is almost luck favors the prepared for product time, right? You can't guarantee that you're going to win. But if you do this user research, and if you really kind of are diligent about the launch, and even to the extent that you, you created the fake product hunt page, user tested it, you can get lucky, but you've prepared for it, right? You've done all the groundwork to increase the probability that it'll be successful. What's a shame is that this is a community. And I see so many people launch and they don't engage with the community in the comments. That's it. If you engage with the community, they're going to love you. Isn't that how communities work? This is a community. So engage with the community. Get them to talk to you. Get them to respond. Ask them for feedback. Whatever it is, go get engagement. And that's what really helps a lot too. Because someone lands on the page and they're seeing the makers talk about it. And they're seeing the makers talk to the people talking about it. That's huge. That's what I would be doing. That's what we do. That's the number one trick. It's not a trick. It's engagement, being human, things like that. It's just what you need to do. And I think that that really helps maximize your chances. Yeah, and it's treating it like a community, not like a marketing channel. You got it. Exactly. Well, Heaton, this has been fantastic. I feel like this is one of the biggest product-led growth brain bombs that has been dropped on the Build podcast yet. So thank you so much for joining us here. This has been fantastic. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. I know you said you folks just wrapped a name around a movement or whatever, but like coining the term product-led growth, I have to thank you and the team for that because that's pretty awesome. And it helps us start figuring out what is this and how do we learn more about how more people can do product-led growth. Well, thank you so much, Eaton. Thanks for tuning in to the last episode of Season 5 of the Build Podcast. Next week, Kyle Poyer, our VP of Market Strategy here at OpenView, will kick off Season 6 talking about one of his favorite topics, pricing. We'll hear valuable perspectives from top pricing experts at Envision, Pluralsight, Reflective, Logical, and more. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. And please give us a five-star rating while you're at it. Outside of podcasts, we produce content daily on OpenView Labs. You can also follow us on Twitter, at OpenView Venture, and subscribe to our newsletter that is sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. Newsletter.